0: Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.
1: Hello, my name is Dr Yvonne Couch and I'm an Alzheimer's Research UK fellow at the University of Oxford and I'm excited to be taking a turn at hosting the Dementia Researcher podcast. Thank you all for tuning in for this week's two-part special discussing the 2021 Alzheimer's Research UK conference, which took place virtually this year. We recorded part one earlier this week, where I was pleased to be a panelist discussing the ECR Day. And today I'm back, joined by four new guests to discuss the science, the panel talks, and the presentations from the week. This was my first specialist conference. I'm used to going to big ones that are just on neuroscience or GLIA, so it was a totally different experience. And I found the whole thing absolutely delightful. The balance of clinical research and fundamental science was awesome and it was good to hear talks discussing everything from careers, to the problems with clinical trials, to drug discovery and design. So I'm delighted to be joined by four wonderful panelists today. We have Beth Eyre from the University of Sheffield, who you may know from her blogs on the Dementia Researcher website. We also welcome Dr. Lucy Russell and Dr. Aitana Sahob-Esteve, who are both research fellows at University College London, working in the Dementia Research Centre. And finally, Michelle Narsens, who is currently a research assistant at the University of Cambridge at the Centre for Frontotemporal Dementia. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining. Hi,
2: everyone. Hello. Hi, everyone.
1: So, before we start, I thought it'd be worth mentioning that all of us are new to the show, so be patient with us. I know we have all listened, but it's great to have a chance to take over and share what we've seen this week. First, let's do some brief introductions and talk about what we were at the conference for. Aitana, I know you had a poster at the conference, so do you want to start?
3: Oh, yes, yes. Thank you for having me in this podcast. Um, Well, uh, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at UCL, and um, I have a background in neuroscience and biology, and now um, I'm focused on fluid biomarkers, uh, especially in genetic frontotemporal dementia, um, and while I have uh, I had a poster for, for this uh, conference that was uh, focused on uh, uh, one of the aspects we look at the fluid biomarker team in my lab, which is the inflammation um, in frontotemporal dementia, and uh, while well, my poster focused on uh, a chemokine uh, analysis in CSS sort of spinal fluid and plasma samples. Uh, from some par- some participants with uh, primary progressive fascists
1: excellent so you must have really enjoyed the the big biomarker session that we had the other day yes
3: yes that's great yeah.
1: <laughs> it's it's good to see it's good to see the stuff that you're interested in when you turn up at a conference and everything is unrelated it's always a bit off-putting uh beth you've mentioned you were short on time to get some data to present but do you want to tell us a little bit about your work and what brought you here
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, So I was a bit of a lurker at the conference, which sounds a bit strange, but I kind of wanted to go to get a feel for like what's happening in the actual field at the moment um, because my background is actually psychology and I've only just started to move into the neuroscience and that's kind of what my PhD is doing. It's moving me over. Um, So I'm currently investigating a mechanism called neurovascular coupling. I'm looking at um, this mechanism in the brain in Alzheimer's disease. And to do that, we use preclinical models. So again, this is all completely new to me, um, but I really enjoyed the research so far. Obviously with the pandemic, um, using preclinical models, it took us a bit of time to like age the models. And then obviously the pandemic affected getting the data. So when the abstract submissions were supposed to be due, I wasn't like finished with my data, Uh, but I started to collect a lot more. So I'm hoping that, well, by next year, I'll definitely be able to um, have a poster there.
1: A lurker is a great description. I was fully a lurker at this conference. And I've got a friend, uh, Chris Martin, who's a neurovascular coupling person at Sheffield. He's Sorry, in the lab, yeah. I was going to say, I'm assuming you know each other. Yes. He's a, he's a very lovely man. He taught me a lot of stuff during my PhD. So, uh, Lucy, you had a poster on in the frontotemporal dementia section. Can you give us a brief roundup of that?
4: Yes, so thank you very much for having me on the podcast today. Um, So my work is um, focusing on uh, genetic forms of frontotemporal dementia, um, along with Atana. And um, in this group of people, um, individuals have problems with their behaviour and their language instead of memory, like an Alzheimer's disease. Um, but because it's a particularly rare disorder, especially when you start to break it down into the different genetic causes, um, so that's expansions in c 9 orf 72 genes and mutations in progranulin MAPT, we really need to tackle this on a global scale. and and part of my role as uh, the postdoc at UCL is working as the Frontotemporal Dementia Prevention Initiative Coordinator. Um, And this is really linking um, big research groups from across the world um, together with pharmaceutical companies and um, consortium groups to promote clinical trials and um, really try and help design the best type of clinical trials that we can do um, for the cohort. And so the poster was basically talking a little bit about that and some of the work that we've been doing on disease progression modelling in FTD um, and comparing um, two of the main cohorts in FTD. So that's the Genetic Front Temporal Dementia Initiative in Europe and Canada, um, run um, by Jonathan Rohrer at UCL, and also all FTD uh, in the US. Um, So it's looking really exciting data. The two cohorts look very similar. Um, and we can see that um, individuals with pergranular mutations are um, particularly um, progressing much quicker than the other genetic groups. And so it's a really interesting cool data coming out of it.
1: Excellent. It's really nice to see like these huge collaborative networks going on. And I think that part some of the panel discussions during the conference really emphasized the importance of actually getting patients from all over the place, because, you know, if you have a very niche, I always feel that the, the niche patient cohorts we get in Oxford are people who are already kind of keen to be involved in research. And therefore, you know, their brains are not necessarily the same as the regular Joe out in the street who doesn't care. And I think getting a, a whole bunch of people from all sorts of places around the world is, is really important.
2: Yeah.
1: Good. Uh Michelle, so you again, you told me prior to this that you just slightly ran out of time to make your own poster, but you did say you were a co-author on a poster with um, Alistair Perry. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and about your work?
0: Well, uh, I'm a research assistant at the University of Cambridge. So I work in the Cambridge Centre for Frontal Temporal Dementia and Related Disorders. Um, the lab I work in is quite diverse and quite big, so I've been involved on the GABA study in, uh, and anti Tiagabin study um, Working on frontal temporal dementia and progressive supranuclear palsy uh, to see if if we administer drugs like memantine or tiagabine, if their brain activation, looking at EEG and MEG, become more similar to controls or not. Um, so I thought that was really fascinating. So I work mostly on the EEG studies and MEG studies on frontal temporal dementia and progressive supranuclear palsy but I'm also involved in our PET studies uh, where we look at inflammation markers, but also synaptic density in cortical basal syndrome and progressive supranuclear palsy. So it's been really nice getting to work with all these different patient cohorts and across all these different imaging modalities. So I'm looking forward to learning more because my post uh, will continue for another year. I actually finished my master's at UCL and I did my dissertation in the same lab as Lucy. It's actually really nice To come across a familiar face
1: It's all nice And very inbred But you'll find that As you progress in science especially if you find an area that you love an area that you're really interested in you end up meeting the same people over and over again especially when you meet uh, old professors who've been around forever and they know everyone and so suddenly everyone you know knows everyone else it's very embarrassing um okay so i thought it might be good to do some day-by-day highlights to make sure we cover everything As I mentioned up top, we covered the ECR day in part one of this series. So scooch back and listen to that if you'd like highlights from there. So we'll start here with day one of the main conference, where we talked a lot about novel drug design and inflammation. Beth and Lucy, do you guys have some highlights from day one you'd like to talk about?
4: I think uh, it was a great start to the conference, actually. And the the welcome introductions were. um, really kind of thought-provoking and inspiring. Um, and I think the yeah, UK video really highlighted some of the challenges that we've all faced over the last year um, with regards to the COVID pandemic and, and how it's been particularly difficult for those suffering from dementia. But it's also been really hard for us researchers too, and um, you know, access to the labs and even um, participant visits and as you've heard from some of the others, you know, collecting this data um, has been really difficult. Um, But I think the video as well did a really great job of highlighting some of the achievements that we've um, made so far this year. Um, And it's moments like this that we can actually all take some time to reflect on what we have actually been able to do over the last year and to keep us motivated um, with our work um, moving forward. Um, And for me, it was particularly uh, motivating to hear Shabnam talk about her own story um, and and how her family coped with um, dementia. And I think moving on to some of the other talks um, for the day, Mike O'Neill gave a great overview of the current status of clinical trials in AD. Um, and it's great to, for me to learn how clinical trials are being run in Alzheimer's disease and um, to help us um, move into the FCD field, as I mentioned earlier, and um, that's what I'm currently working on at the moment. So it's really helpful to see what things are working and what things perhaps aren't doing so well. Um, I thought it was particularly exciting that the aducanumab trial um, is actually under review by the FDA and the European Medical Agency, um, despite the trial being stopped for for futility back in 2019. Um, And some of the other antibody-style drugs, such as um, aducanumab by Eli Lilly, are also showing some promise. I thought it was particularly interesting looking at these two different trials um, here because of the uh, difference in the eligibility criteria. Uh, The second trial by Eli Lilly um, really moved away from the clinical dementia rating scale as the primary outcome measure um, uh, to a more kind of integrated and specific scale um, that might actually be better for measuring um, changes in kind of clinical presentation um, for the primary outcome measure. Um, So I think that's really important to take away from all other studies and really thinking about which which assessment tools we should be using uh, in these clinical trials and also thinking about the actual design of the trial as well and the inclusion criteria for the participants. And finally, I suppose with relation to my work in FTD, uh, Mike also talked about some of the um, tau pathology um, trials in AD and other neurodegenerative disorders such as progressive supranuclear palsy and FTD. Um, and he was talking about a number of ways which you might be able to prevent the accumulation of tau. Um, and this could be through the inhibition of tau expression or even by um, targeting post-translational modifications of tau, just to name a few. And he, he discussed the use of small molecule therapies and antibodies, um, as well as briefly touching on some antisense and gene therapies, um, again, which are particularly pertinent to the world of FTD. And I think it's really exciting that we've got all these different trials going on. Um, and whilst we do have some failures along the way, I think we're learning from these all the time and we, we really can um, take from these and move forward. And hopefully um, we will have something useful in the next year or two um, so yeah i think it was might go for a really great overview of, of where the field is at the moment and it was a really great way to start the the conference
1: yeah and i thought it was a really nice he uh, there was there was there was some like you say some disappointing news with the huntington trial um, but there there were still a lot of positive messages in there that that suggested that we can definitely go forward and, and make some progress in this in this area
2: Beth what did you enjoy about day one? So just to add to what you've just said I really liked hearing about the clinical trials because it's not something I focus on too much because I am pre-clinical work but I really appreciated when um, I think it was Mike I'm not too sure said how important uh, the data collection at the pre-clinical stage is because that's the sort of data that allows us to progress to these um, actual clinical trials in humans and um, so I really appreciated that and that's something I'll definitely take forward with my, with my own research. So the second part of um, day one was all about the prizes. And um, the first two talks were from Dr. Sophie Bradley and Assistant Professor Renzo Mancuso, who um, they were both awarded the David Hague Early Career Investigator of the Year Award. Um, and this is like a I think it's usually just given to one person, but I don't think they could choose this year. Um, And it's worth 25000 in research expenses and they get a personal prize of 1500 And I think they said that they shared the prize this year. Um, And it's presented to the most outstanding early career researcher in the field of biomedical dementia research with less than 10 years experience post PhD. So congratulations to um, those two. So Sophie told us a bit, gave us a bit of an insight about her career so far and um, some of the work she's currently doing. Um, her, her and her team are investigating the G-protein-coupled receptor superfamily and their aim is to try and find potential new therapies for Alzheimer's disease through this um, G-protein-coupled receptor superfamily. The recent work um, that she spoke about is focused on determining um, how they can achieve these disease-modifying effects. And the results look really promising. They're using um, prion mice and they used a M1 positive allosteric modulator. um, And the results suggest that by targeting this receptor, it can actually protect against the damaging changes seen in these prion disease mice. So I think that's really exciting um, in the field. Um, It's not my background, but the way that um, she did the talk allowed it to be quite accessible to me, which was really good. And then the second talk was... um, by Renzo, and this focused on his research, and that's using xenotransplantation models to study human microglia biology and Alzheimer's disease. Um, And again, his talk focused on on some of the work um, him and his lab have been doing, and they basically developed a a new method, this is the xenotransplantation, it's a new method um, to allow them to study uh, microglia and the genotype phenotype interactions in Alzheimer's disease and these other brain disorders. Again, not my research area, but I did find um, what they were doing just fascinating. Um, Some of the stuff that people can do now is genuinely wow. Um, I think science is is just moving on and moving on. Things that we're going to be able to do in the future is really exciting. And then the final talk was from an early career researcher, Emma Jones, um, who was awarded the Jean Corson Prize um, for the best scientific paper in neurodegeneration uh, research, which was published by either a PhD or an MD, PhD student. Um, And her talk was basically just about the paper um, so the title of the paper was "Identification of a Novel Risk Loci and Causal Insights for Sporadic Kreutzfeldt-Jakob Disease: A Genome-Wide Association Study." So herself and the group she's in, they did a genome-wide association study and basically found forty-one genome-wide significant single nucleotide polymorphisms, also known as SNPs, which I learned at the conference. Um, and they were able to uh, independently replicate these findings at three loci. Losey- Associated with um, sporadic Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, um, so basically they were, they were saying in the paper that they this is like the first evidence been able to statistically um, see these robust genetic associations in this human prion disease, um, which implicate intracellular trafficking um, and some other mechanisms. So I think that was really exciting. Um, again, not my field, but the way um, Emma was able to. Um, do her talk did allow it to be um, really, really accessible for something that is so complex?
1: Yeah, it's definitely a skill. And I think being able to present something that is, uh, you know, like you say, potentially inaccessible is is difficult. Or uh, at the other end of the spectrum, I went to a presentation on a topic at some point a couple of years ago, which I fully expected to be really boring. But the guy made it so interesting and you end up suddenly getting sucked in and going, oh, maybe I could do this. And and then you've got eight more research ideas, which you really don't have time for. Good, so that was day one. Day one was brilliant. Um, let's move on to day two. So day two is much more clinical. So I'm gonna start with a basic sort of discussion type question for specifically Lucy and Itana. So although Michelle, you feel free to jump in on this as well, because I know you work with people. So you guys work at a large dementia research center And you work closely with clinicians. How do you find as sort of, I don't want, I do not like the term basic researcher. I'm very against that. But as sort of fundamental researchers, how do you find that working relationship with clinicians?
3: I think for me, it's... um... Uh, I joined uh, less than a year ago, this group on the DRC, and it's been a great experience because you have a very different point of view. And I'm indeed learning a lot about, in the case of, of frontotemporal dementia, about the cognitive, the clinical, and also the imaging. And I think that uh, it's great because you create a, a, a kind of... Uh, two-way uh, feedback from the basic part to the to the more clinical part and I think that's a, a very good thing uh, to work with because you take uh, into account very different points of views and you can integrate it and I think then you have a better picture of what you are looking at basically. Yeah I agree and I think it it really makes you question
4: every idea that you have and how, how does it impact the patient? How does it help on an everyday basis? You know, I think it, we'll come on to you later, but um, there was the sensory session looking at um, problems with vision and hearing. And those are the things that the patients have problem with on a daily basis. And those are the things that, can make a huge difference and I think sometimes it's it's quite difficult to see that when we're so focused on our own particular projects and we get our heads down in our books and our papers and you know sometimes working with the clinicians it gives you that ability to kind of take a step back and see the bigger picture and question why why what you're doing is actually going to help and you know you get to get to see patients you get to work with them and hear their stories and go to support groups and do all those things that perhaps um, you wouldn't get to do if you weren't working with them.
3: Yeah. yeah, I think that the support group thing is very something very new for me and very useful because um, I, I've always been working in the lab and I only receive a tube with something and then I work with that, but I never see uh, from where it comes and, and what is happening, what is the real-life story of that, and it's uh, it's really good.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Michelle, do you want to yeah. add some stuff? Yeah.
3: Sorry, I completely agree with that as well, because um,
0: I get to go to memory clinics as well, so you get to see how it actually impacts the patients, how it impacts their loved ones and their carers, because they sit in during these um, meetings, and you just see their face go really sad when they underperform on a cognitive task like they are, and it just shows you how relevant it is to do research. But we also, most of our clinical trials, focus on clinical trials and treating the disease. But uh, in this next session, Craig Ritchie uh, also mentioned that we should look at symptomatic treatments and actually do trials on those. Because treatment for the disease is amazing, but it's so far ahead in the future still that we should also look at how we can actually maintain the quality of life of the patients that have the disease right now. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep, yeah, that's definitely really important. It is something that's coming in in a lot of fields. So uh, my background is stroke and the issue we have in the stroke field is people have tended towards almost in the same way that they've done in the dementia field, you look at the brain and is what your is your intervention fixing something in the brain? So in the case of dementia or you know is it reducing amyloid, is it reducing tau? If it is, then it must be great and it's the same with stroke. Is it making the infarct volume smaller? And actually, the field's moving away from that now to saying, actually, are the functional outcomes there? So, you know, can in terms of preclinical research, if you've given an animal a stroke, can it walk better after your intervention? You know, can it use its limbs better after your your intervention? And, And that kind of stuff, like you say, in dementia, is really important because it is all about getting the person's quality of life back. But that leads us really well onto the big panel discussion they had on day two about clinical trials. And uh, Michelle, you just briefly touched on it there. Do you want to give us a bit more information on on the sorts of things that they discussed?
0: Yeah, um, that clinical trial session was absolutely fascinating to me. Uh, And I think what I really liked about it was the need for representation in research. Uh, I think Lucy knows that as well, that the patients we recruit from our studies get recruited from specialized clinics. So our movement disorder clinic or a memory clinic. And those people presenting to these clinics, they all are already a biased group, let alone those that then go on to go into research or even clinical trials. So when you look at our cohort, uh, FTD cohort, these people tend to be highly educated from a higher socioeconomic status. And they also tend to be white. that is not representative for the whole UK population or the patient groups in general. So I think that is really important to look at. And when you look at our research, I conduct research in Cambridge. And of course, that can never be representative of the whole UK because Cambridge is a special place in and of itself. So I think that is really important to take into account where you're doing research. Both Cambridge and Oxford, they are very special places, uh, even though we're rivals, but we will have Biased patient groups in our research, so that is very important to take into account when you're doing clinical trials. Um, So I think Craig Ritchie again, he mentions an opt-out system um, for research, same as you do with uh, organ donation, which would be really good. But that also depends on those people already presenting to these specialised clinics. So I think we should start before, and I think uh, the Joint Dementia Researcher is. Uh, or jo- join dementia research is a really great platform for that, but I think we should also work in the community and go to these people because, once again, those people that go on these sites they are a biased group. So I think there's just so many more things we should take into account.
1: Yeah, very much so. It's it's something that we have a problem with preclinically. I know in that we almost do the same thing. You know, we do all of our experiments on young healthy you know male mice and that's just not what any of this is about you know it's all these are all aged populations they're mixed they have comorbidities and you know so we have to link it up all the way throughout the field so we have to get our preclinical research populations appropriately mixed and then we have to get our clinical populations appropriately mixed if we're ever going to think about translating any of this stuff.
2: I completely Um, agree with, sorry to interject, but I completely get that, especially from being at the preclinical level. Um, A lot of the labs, like you said, just use male mice. I've I've said I wanted to use male and female mice um, because dementia also affects women. (laughs) Um, And it's the same with the clinical trials. A lot of the data, it's from males. And how can we use the data from the clinical trials if if there's not the right gender split? And again, same with... um, Economic status, and ethnicity and things like that, and it's really important to get that representativeness. Um, And you mentioned about comorbidities. Most people with who have like the symptoms that are dementia, it's not just one thing that's causing them. It's 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 one or two things, isn't it? So in our lab, we also research comorbidities. So we have like Alzheimer's um, with, um, and we induce like atherosclerosis as well to look at the links between Alzheimer's and, and heart disease, that sort of thing. Yeah, and having these kind of platforms
1: where you can access different patient cohorts like Lucy was talking about at the beginning, I think, are going to be really important going forward. So in terms of big networks, we also on day two briefly discussed the EDEN um, platform, which for those of you who don't know, is is the Early Detection of Neurodegeneration Initiative. Um, They have a website. Go check it out if you're interested at edeninitiative.org. Um, Beth, I'm wondering whether you could give us a brief roundup of what the EDEN initiative
2: is and why it's important. Yeah, so the EDEN, or the Early Detection of Neurodegenerative Diseases, is a really exciting project, actually. And they're like, um, their overall aim is to detect these, these neurodegenerative diseases way before we see the symptoms. Um, with things that cause dementia, with the diseases that cause dementia, You see the symptoms when the disease is really quite progressed. Um, And obviously, the point of this is to interject early, um, which could potentially stop people having the symptoms, um, which really do affect an individual's life. So if this works, it could be really life-changing. And the whole point is they've got together a big group. um, It's a big collaborative project globally. Um, They have data scientists and digital technology scientists. Um, clinicians and they're all working together to create a a tool a digital tool um, that includes like wearable technology and smartphones that potentially could help with the detection of these uh, neurodegenerative diseases Um, and the point of this digital tool is that they want to collect like vast amounts of data um, and then Try and link these with clinical tests such as brain scans in order to see if there's um like digital patterns, a bit like a digital thing, like a fingerprint, um, to see if they can like identify fingerprints in different neurodegenerative diseases. And again, like I mentioned, if, if this does work, it's it's really exciting because it could really change people's lives.
1: Again, it's all about catching stuff early and having that huge network of available people and With so many neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, whatever, you don't catch it until you've already got it. Um, And so these kinds of studies are so important. One of my favorite ones is not Alzheimer's related. It's the woman who can smell Parkinson's. Still officially my favorite paper ever. Um, So on the third day, which we'll move on to now, we saw some heavy hitting and timely topics coming up, starting with some work on the influence of viruses on dementia particularly important this year um and we followed up with some work on biomarker discovery i'm gonna leap in because for me the work of colm cunningham is always a pleasure to see he's interested in peripheral inflammation and how that affects the brain and some communication pathways between the brain and the periphery and he uses some very elegant models and he just always presents his work very beautifully so i love colm so that that's my highlight from day three but Aitana, is there anything you really enjoyed about the viral
2: sessions?
3: Yeah, well, I think Colm's uh, uh, talk was um, particularly interesting. And I think, uh, well, inflammation is a, is a topic that increasingly has more importance in dementia. It's been, there are um, uh, increasing uh, evidences that microlia plays a crucial role. And uh, from Colm's talk is that this systemic inflammation can also affect the brain, of course, because it's something systemic. Um, but I I particularly found the first from Clayton Wiley, very informative. There was a couple of things that I didn't know uh, about this uh, relation between dementia and viral infection. A couple of things that uh, were commented in that talk is that um, even there is not a real relation between Infections and, and dementia from the literature. It seems that just the fact to, to to of the aging to have an old immune system, that is something that uh, can can be a risk for for developing something more after viral infection, and also um, uh, two more things that shocked me is that um, um, there was a fact that aerosol transmitted virus and. Um, uh, they are uh, affecting can affect more just the nervous system because uh, if they uh, are transmitted by by uh, the air they uh, the immune system cannot uh, tackle them um, um, properly or while in uh, uh, better than than other uh, infections and also another thing that was commenting uh, this is this was just an hypothesis from from that was uh, discussed in the in the questions uh, and it was the theory that maybe uh, the microglia um uh, does this uh, activate this synaptic pruning to avoid the transmission of the virus from cell to cell? And I think that's something I have never thought about it. And I think it's a um, very interesting uh, uh, topic, a very interesting theory. Um, and yeah. And then the the session about uh, uh, the COVID-19 was uh, very. I mean. Very interesting for the uh, times that we have now, and just the fact that uh, um, that uh, Marcus found uh, viral particles in the vagal nerve—it uh, was very shocking for me. Um, and then, um, of course. There is this increasing evidence I mentioned before, and that was uh, something that Dervis explained in his talk about the uh, gene association with Alzheimer's disease and and this uh, COVID 19 uh, severe uh, cows, severe um, uh, people. So, yeah, I think it was all very interesting and on topic now.
1: Yeah, definitely. There was a th- there was one bit of that session that where I had to look. So genetics is not my field at all. Uh, there was something about um, a quantitative trait. I'm going to go with Beth's version, which was loci, but it could be loci. I'm never sure how to say that word. Um, but that I had to look up and I was like, "Ooh, you can get different amounts of mRNA expression at different, p- different people can have different amounts. This is so cool. And I feel that That's very like first year undergrad genetics, which I was either asleep for or I'm so old that it was discovered after I did my undergrad. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, that kind of stuff where they were looking at the severity of SARS and the genes that are expressed and how that might relate to aging. I thought it was fascinating. And the fact that you can have viruses, like potentially have viruses repeatedly throughout your life. And this might affect how you age, which makes me a bit paranoid about taking public transport but I don't think there's anything we can do about that. Um so Michelle you use MRI as a way of looking at dementia but do you think combining it with other biomarker studies would be useful and was there anything from the biomarker aspect of the day that you thought was particularly inspiring.
0: Yeah I think you can't do research without pulling your data from different types of biomarkers. Cuz I love MRI uh, it's The imaging method I have most experience with. But there's only so much you can tell with it. Uh, Like Nick Fox said during his presentation, MRI is great for diagnoses. If there's atrophy of the hippocampus, you can quite confidently say that this person has Alzheimer's. Or if there's amyloid deposition in certain parts of the brain in a PET scan, you can also say that person has Alzheimer's but it's a quite static marker. So you can't discern small changes over time. So it will never be able to tell you if your treatment is successful, if there is a trial happening. So I think what is very important is to look at um, markers that are dynamic, that can detect these little things over change. So block biomarkers or CSF biomarkers would be great because they're quite easily obtained. You can take them multiple times without really having an effect on the patient. As so if you do a PET scan, that's radioactive. So there's only so many uh, scans you can do. Uh, and they're quite costly as well. So if you take blood biomarkers, um, you can analyse a lot of them in one go. Um, and, yeah, it's quite cheap. What I thought was really interesting was this salivary biomarkers. I knew that a lot of labs took saliva from their patients, but I didn't know how they analysed them or what the findings were, how fault, how far the field has progressed in that regard. So I think that will be amazing as a um, dynamic marker of change, and it will be really great for a patient as well because they can just take their own saliva and then just send it off in a post box. Even uh, they don't have to go come into clinic, and quite similar to an at-home COVID test, really. Just put it in a post box and just gone with the life. Um, additionally, I thought the. Digital biomarkers were really interesting. So sort of tying it in with the Eden network, um, I thought the in-ear EEG um, analysis was really amazing. I didn't even think that was possible, so it really blew my mind. Was- I didn't realise there was something like that that existed. I think that, would,
4: compared to the um, sleep headwear that they were suggesting, which is a brilliant idea and concept, but in reality, I'm not sure it worked that well, particularly when you think of behavioural FTD patients, patients, like there's no way they're going to keep that on their head for a night. Whereas those little
0: in EEGs were incredible. Yeah, it just really blew my mind that that was even possible. How do you even come up with that idea? So yeah, just there's so many things happening nowadays and technologies advance so quickly. And there's so many people out there in the field that are just so incredibly small, developing these technologies, developing these methods. It just gives me so much hope for the future. So I think if we can Pull this all together like these different technologies different methods different biomarkers and then working across different studies different centers different countries i think the sky really is the limit
1: and i think like you say, you say like applying some of those um techniques that are just so snazzy like that in a eeg business really will help with patient recruitment so if you can give But if people don't have to come, people don't like hospitals, if they don't have to come into a hospital or they don't have to come into a funky study center and sit in a clinical waiting room, you know, when they've got dementia and that's going to make them uncomfortable and they're going to get anxious and, you know, that might affect your design. If you can get them in their natural environment, then, you know, it's so much easier. Um, Itana, you work on biomarkers. Did you enjoy that session as well?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. Yeah, and uh, also there's a. It has been lately a lot of updates on the fluid biomarker field as well. So I think Hendrik's talk was was great, uh, mainly on this uh, uh, blood biomarker, blood phosphatase, because the problem is that blood is is not being uh, uh, easy fluid to find biomarkers because uh, for dementia you you need to find things that reflect the state of the brain. And and sometimes uh, the concentration of those biomarkers in blood is is very low that you cannot detect it with any technique. So, um, but the research is now focused on that. And I think there are very good uh, uh, improvements and developments on that.
1: Yeah, and like Michelle says, I think if we just all pull together and and, really focus our efforts, I think spectacular stuff could happen. So uh, finally, we'll move on to day four, where we had some important talks on protein misfolding, but I'm going to steal the stage a bit here and talk about Dr. Rachel Wallace's talk from the first session, which was on the development of dementia post-stroke, which is my field of fun. So she was using the COGFAST cohort, which is... Um, a clinical cohort, it's run by Raj Kalaria in Newcastle. Um, and what she was doing, she's taking postmortem tissue and she was using laser capture microdissection, which I think is a beautiful and slightly underused technique. And she was taking out endothelial cells and astrocytes and neurons. And then she was doing microarrays on each cell type. And what she found was that she got this fundamental breakdown of the neurovascular unit, but this was at a site that was distant from the stroke. And for me, that's one of the important things about vascular dementia after stroke is that your stroke often happens in the back of your backslash middle of your brain. And you can have all of these vascular changes that happen distant from this site. And there doesn't seem to be any link between the size of the stroke or where the stroke is in terms of who is developing vascular dementia and who isn't, so something else has clearly got to be going on, and I thought that Rachel really started to pin down some of some of what was going on there. Uh, so I thought her research was really fascinating. Um, but then we had the neurosensory section. So Lucy, can I come to you and ask whether there was anything from that that you found particularly fascinating?
4: Yeah, I think um, particularly the first two talks of the session, um, the one by Maya and then the other one by um, Jason Warren um, were particularly interesting looking at these things that kind of affecting um, the patient's everyday life. Um, So the first one was about um, using uh, the retina um, to predict status of Alzheimer's disease. And she was talking about how we can actually find um, uh, changes in the retina very early on uh, in the disease um, and actually, we could be looking at things like tau and amyloid uh, within the retina using very relatively cheap um, imaging tools, um, and it, it could be an alternative way um, to pick up these things in in everyday life. You know, if you went to Specsavers for your uh, eye test or something, you know, it could end up being something that's actually a, a practical tool um, and, a, and a screen in a clinical setting that that could be useful and um, very early on and, and this is kind of um, iterated in Jason's talk um, afterwards um, around hearing and developing a hearing screen that could be used in in clinics to to pick up these early changes and he was talking about some of these difficulties that that um, often um, individuals with Alzheimer's disease say that they have in terms of really kind of getting lost in social situations and this background noise really kind of taking over and making it very difficult to focus on on the conversation that's at hand and um, they've done a variety of different tasks um, in in hearing from kind of peripheral hearing problems and um, musical um, hearing. And um, he kept referring to the cocktail party effect, that, like I spoke about before. And and I think these sorts of things can, can be really useful uh, down the line. And, um, yeah, I think they were fascinating talks and something that definitely need exploring further to see what utility they can have in everyday life to to pick up these diagnoses
1: earlier. Yeah, and it harks back to that, you know, being able to recruit more people at easily accessible places. You know, everybody has eye tests and loads of old people have hearing tests. If you can catch them there, that is nothing but a good thing. Um, So I know that we're short on time, but uh, it was a digital conference. It was a virtual conference. um, And I personally thought the platform was really interesting but i wanted to ask you guys what you thought about it so beth should we
2: start with you um i quite liked actually this is my first proper virtual conference i've not really had any experience with the others and um i hadn't really been to any real conferences before so i have nothing really to compare things to so i guess that's quite good um but i i thought it was really accessible i liked that you could chat to other delegates and um, I had a couple of conversations with people and I really like the on-demand section afterwards so if, if you did miss a talk because I had to miss one or two um because of the things I couldn't get out of it's nice to know that it's still there and I can go and catch up on it yeah definitely
1: and Michelle you're going to be relatively new at this whole conference game because you're sort of much earlier in your career than all us old people what how did you find the the platform
0: yeah, I really liked it. Um, the setup was quite minimalistic, so it was quite easy to find your way, find when things were being presented, where to find the posters. Mm-hmm. So I went to AAIC in summer, and I thought that platform was way more complicated and more, more complicated to move across because um, I couldn't really find things. So I just chose to watch things on demand, uh, and I liked this a lot better. Um, what I would have preferred to be there was closed caption options to the videos. Maybe they are there, but I didn't see them. I think that would help accessibility.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you on that front. I, I do, Although I do occasionally find them distracting when they start to miss, especially when people have accents when they start to mistranslate what they're saying and then you just get distracted looking at the funny sentences that are clearly not what the person just said. But if it's done well, it's really helpful. So Lucy and Aitana, have you done many virtual conferences over the last year? How did you find this compared to the ones that you've already done? Yeah, we've been to a few,
4: haven't we? I thought it was very good on a whole. Um, I thought that, you know, in general, the platform ran well. I did have a few issues with it freezing. I don't know if other people did on the live video. Yes,
1: definitely. Yeah, Repeatedly.
4: Great thing. Um, but, you know, it was a quick fix, you know, a refresh of the, the screen and, and it was back. Um, perhaps in my old age, um, I would have perhaps liked a, like a PDF of the agenda. Um, I liked the the interactive style of the agenda and the way you could bookmark the sessions that you liked. Um but when I first got into the, the conference at the, the start, I just wanted to have a quick glimpse through what was on and the clicking between the pages. But, I mean, it was a minor thing. Um, it, it worked perfectly well. Um, but, yeah, that would have been the only thing I would have there, would have liked.
3: Yeah. Antona, how, yeah, how did you find yeah, it? I agree with Lucy. I mean, it was great. And I really liked the way um, that you go to the day and you can see all day and you click and you linked directly to the talk. Uh, but yeah, I missed maybe a PDF agenda as well. And also just one thing that uh, have driven me a bit crazy is the poster notifications. So if you got any comment, uh, you have to you tag your poster because, well, maybe it's something, it has something it only happened to me, but I couldn't get any notifications that people was asking me things in the poster and I had to check every time. But for the rest, I think it was really good. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was a nice platform. Go, Lucy. You've got something to say.
3: Yeah. Another thing I really appreciated, and thank you, ARUK,
4: for doing it, is the breaks. I have been to a number of those yes. conferences that have slammed you from like five hours at a time without a break. Um, so I really did appreciate those. So thank you. Very
1: yes, much. we've got we've got lots of nodding from all the other panel members, and I went to one earlier in the summer where they did, they did flash presentations. And don't get me wrong, I love a flash presentation, but this was these were all five-minute talks. They'd done it poster style, so you could barely see anything. And they did about 15 of them in one go. And I got to about seven, and I was like, I don't know what's going on, my brain hurts. So yeah, repeated breaks. And the fact that they were half days, so that you could spend the other half of the day doing you know, science or, or, or childcare or whatever you're, you know, looking after your cats in the case of Selena, whose cat like repeatedly pops up on Twitter, which I love. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a really nice layout. I, as a new person, I really enjoyed the, um, the, the disturbing, you know, dating app style matching, you know, who's, who's le- because I found someone who was doing stroke and vascular dementia and inflammation. I was like, Oh, let's be friends. It was really childish. Michelle, did you want to leap in?
0: Yeah, there's another thing I really liked was that the on-demand session was available next day. Some conferences, they wait until the whole conference is done. But especially since it was only a half day, I could just choose to watch things back the next day, which was really nice.
1: Yeah, there was plenty of space, which was lovely. Well, uh, thank you everyone for sharing your thoughts. So, if you attended the conference and missed those talks, we hope you can seek them out and watch them on catch up. If you didn't book and can't access those presentations, I hope our summaries today were interesting. And if you you check out Twitter with the hashtag ARUKConf21, you will find plenty of chat about the week. So before we finish, I'm going to let all of our panellists give a plug to anything they might want to. So um, let's start with Beth. I know you've got podcasts and Instagram going. So do you want to plug them?
2: Yes. So um, if you want to hear about my experiences as a PhD student um, and some of the research that I do, you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram, which is where I do most of my science communication And that is at Beth's Brain Bites. And I also have a podcast. Um, The podcast is called Honest Academia. You can find it on Apple or on Spotify or on other places you get your podcasts. And myself and my friend Mal, we talk about the experiences of navigating academia as first generation PhD students.
1: Excellent. Thank you very much. So Lucy, you've mentioned to me that you've got a student working on something similar to the EDEN project. So if you give us a bit of a rundown of that, and then I can run through your social media and the FTD Talks website stuff.
4: Yeah, so um, one of um, the students that I'm helping to supervise, Rianne Convery, um, she's doing a programme very similar to EDON um, but in frontotemporal dementia. Um, so it is also called the Early Detection of Frontotemporal Dementia or known as EDOF. Um, and you can find her poster um, if you're at AR UK um, in the frontotemporal dementia session, and it was number 4.8. Um, as part of this project, she has an iPad app called Ignite. And that's I-G-N-I-T-E. And she's currently validating this in the general population. And so far, she's done really well and managed to collect data on people aged 20 to 80. And is hoping to get 100 men and 100 women from each decade. Um, At the minute, she's actually recruited just over 1,500 people, which is an amazing achievement. Um, But she hasn't quite got enough individuals under 50 um, to have taken part in it. The app's made up of a few fun, short activities, but like brain training games. Um, And it really doesn't take very long to complete. Um, So if anybody would like to help, um, please download the Ignite app from the Apple App Store. um, Or you can check out the website um, www.igniteftd.com. And you also can find her on Twitter at Edoff.
1: Perfect. Thank you. Aitana, do you want to give us a rundown of your stuff?
3: Yeah, of course. Well, uh, both Lucy and me are part of the FTD Talk team at UCL and um, in our uh, aims is the public engagement and raise awareness about genetic FTD and FTD. So we have a website, uh, it's ftdtalk.org. Or a D. And there we have some useful information about FTD, about our research. We also have a blog in which we upload our latest research and some interesting posts. And then we also have a, a Twitter account, an Instagram page, and a Facebook page, uh, all of them FTD talk. So if you follow us, we we post some information about FTD, genetic FTD, and our research.
1: Brilliant. Thank you ever so much. So, Michelle, you're still relatively new. Do you have anything that you want to plug?
0: So nothing really majorly research-related like the rest of you. Um, But during lockdown, I've really embraced my inner grandma, and I've started embroidering. Um, But since I don't want to end up with loads of embroidery things, uh, I decided to start fundraising for Alzheimer Research UK and into Science UK. Um, So I have an Instagram page, uh, Michelle Embroider's. Uh, and then you can ask for commissions or just buy pieces I have. And half of the profits will go to Alzheimer's Research UK or InterScience UK.
1: That is absolutely fabulous. Well done on setting that up. And as someone who is funded by Alzheimer's Research UK, I would like to say thank you very much. It is beautiful that you're doing that. So it's time to end today's podcast recording. I would like to thank our panellists, Beth Eyre, Dr. Lucy Russell, Dr. Aitana sohobe Esther michelle narsens and if everyone can say a big goodbye
2: Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: so we have profiles on all of today's panelists on the dementia research website including details of their twitter accounts thank you all for listening the dementia researcher podcast is available on spotify apple Podcasts, stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from and please remember to like comment and subscribe and keep sciencing everyone
0: Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society. Supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.